Ash. Um, it's been a little bit longer since the last time, uh, given some health complications, but it's nice to see you again. Yeah, it's nice to see you too. And it seems like, Carrie, you're feeling a lot better. So I think, you know, taking a week off was definitely the right call. <laughs> oh, you would not want to want to have listened to my voice or me trying to hack up a lung. That was not going to be great listening uh, material at all. <laughs> <laughs> or just the endless edits that would have come afterwards. But yes, <laughs> well, there would have I'm... been a lot of those. <laughs> uh, yeah, we, we went through that here in um, early September. So I know it's it's not fun, but I'm, I'm happy to hear that you're you're on the mend. Yes. And it, I know it's a path to, to, to bouncing back from this ridiculous virus. But I think, uh, you know, I'm happy to hear that you sound great. Well, that, I'm I'm glad because what sounds what what is in my head is not always necessarily what everyone else is hearing, and it's like <laughs> hmm, I can still tell it's not quite where I want it to be, um, but it's way better. I mean, last last week was something else, and then of course you didn't hear me at my worst, and th- th- <laughs> that shall never ever be heard <laughs> by anyone. <laughs> Well, awesome. Uh, So, you know, uh, it's been about three weeks since we recorded because we do these every couple of weeks and Mm -hmm. we took we took that week off. Um, Last time we chatted, we were talking a bit about uh, open API tools because I'm I'm just kind of I don't know why, but I'm just kind of like having a deep dive into that right now and kind of just getting up to the state of affairs on what it's like these days to, you know, work with open API, mm-hmm. um, particularly from, and I, and I don't think I mentioned this last time uh, uh, explicitly, but w- what I'm really interested in is taking that API design first approach. So, mm. you know, w- when I've mentioned to others out in the real world, you know, um, hey, I- I'm looking into open API tools and I'm not quite finding what I want. People are like, yeah, but there's plenty of crawlers that will crawl over your Node.js server and, you know, give you your endpoints. There are also some tools out there. I'm sorry. So when I say give you your endpoints, they will crawl over your server and uh, then produce an open API file Mm, for you. And there are some that will even like monitor traffic and produce an open API file based on that. So I haven't even dug into that because I I think it's very cool. It's also, I think, for a certain situation where you've already got things in place and you just need (laughs) the tool to sort of figure it out. Um, I I, I understand why those tools exist, and I'm sure they're a godsend for people that are using them for, for their projects, for their products. In this situation, I'm actually more interested in finding like a tool that enables me to take a design first approach to mm-hmm. building out an API. So what does that mean? In my mind, it means we'll start with, you know, the actual spec. And am I starting with the spec file in YAML or JSON? Yeah, sure. I can do that. There's probably some GUI tools out there mm-hmm. um, for, for my purposes, like how I get to interact with creating that spec and maintaining it from a design first perspective, that that particular tool set is almost like a secondary concern for me right now. All I want to be able to say is at some point I have an open API spec in a YAML file. Right. And then I can run a tool that will then stub out a server for me. And so this is what I've been looking for. Um, and there there were tools that we discussed last time that are out there that just weren't quite what I wanted, um, partially because, you know, we, we talked a little bit about Node and Express being unopinionated. And mm-hmm. <laughs> in some ways, that means that by definition, um, you know, anytime someone builds a tool for it, they're injecting an opinion 
into it because they had to write some code. Right. And, and, and there are Express, lots of opinions. <laughs> exactly. And Node and Express don't tell you, okay, this is the right way to do X, Y, right. and Z most of the time. So um, instead, it, that gets left up to the individual developers, usually building the apps. But if you're a tool builder, now mm. the tool builder, right, the person stubbing out your server is making some of those decisions. And, um, you know, that that's fine. It, it, uh, I don't necessarily faults anyone for, you know, you have to make some decisions along the way. And so that that's totally cool. I just, you know, for some of the stuff I was seeing, it wasn't quite how I wanted to, to build things out. Right. And that, so anyways, that's kind of like a nice sort of uh, <laughs> regurgitation of what we talked about at length last time. So in the last interim, week on, I'd rather be scripting. <laughs> exactly. exactly. So I thought, well, you know, like that's probably, there, there was a, a point a few weeks ago where I thought it might be fun to build that tool. And I even started like kind of sketching out in my notebook what such a tool would look like, right? Mm. Where again, you could um, basically have an open that open API spec file. However, it got there, doesn't matter. The tool would be agnostic to that, but you have basically right. the API design right there. And then it runs over that and spits out a simple Node.js server um, and preferably it can do that continuously because of course APIs don't stand still. You will inevitably True. over time version your API in different ways to add features or remove things. And, and you want, you want the tool to be able to continue to do that, mm -hmm. um, and, and be a, a good sort of like, I don't know, just part of your tool chain. Right. Right. So, um, that part of it I'd say is a still a bit of a TBD, but in terms of some other things that, uh, you know, uh, I was hoping for, it turns out there's a really good tool out there that was just kind of, um, on a long list of things to look at and I just hadn't quite gotten to it yet. So, ah, <laughs> yeah, I thought maybe we'd go through a little bit of that and, uh, just kind of talk you through, uh, some of what it does. That sounds amazing. So this tool is called OAS Tools. Uh, <laughs> this I, is. <laughs> I, 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 this already reminds me of like e even uh, you know in Adobe Land when we did extensive worked on extensibility is like our ability to come up with cool names. Um, I I work on the the or have worked on the extensibility solution called UXP and we called our developer tools UXP developer tools nothing fancy and this 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 feels like it's a uh, wider trend. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's definitely that part of like developer tool land where sometimes you just get like these pretty nondescript things uh, that are kind of like, well, I don't know. And then you look <laughs> under the hood and it's like, this is exactly what I needed. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's funny because I've thought about this in, in other realms where people do get super creative with the names. And then I, I cannot remember for the life of me which which thing does what what it's called or sometimes it's, it's unsearchable or like you'd look at the name and you would go well i would never even consider looking at that because it doesn't even indicate what it's used for so yes there, there's a fine line to be walked there and i'm certainly <laughs> not creative enough to walk it yeah i <laughs> exactly so i'm I, nor, nor am i uh all i'll say is like i just want to make a little noise about this tool so hopefully yes. people can find it a little more easily um, I just think it's this fantastic lightweight little thing that has some nice developer experience qualities to it. Um, so OAS Tools, if you if you wanted to find their website, it, it is oas-tools.github.io. Hmm. And um, I guess what I really wanted to talk about is uh, a few things. Uh, so in terms of like what boxes does it check in, you know, for what I was looking for? 
So I have an open API file. Again, that's a mm-hmm. YAML file in my case. You can write them in JSON if you want. I'm, I'm actually finding that I, I, I do appreciate YAML a bit more in that context. It's just a little, just less... A little bit less arbitrary syntax or and, and weird symbols going on. Precisely, precisely. Yes. And and honestly, like, that's kind of the way the wind's blowing anyways. So, uh, you know, you'll you'll just find if you get stuck, like, it's easier to find help um, if you're if you're doing it the way everyone else does it. So here happy we paths. are. Happy paths. Exactly. Happy paths. And so, yeah, you, you if you have a if you have that uh, open API spec as a YAML file or I believe it'll handle JSON as well. But mm-hmm. this this tool will read that in. And um, and then spit out a server for you in Node.js and Express. So pretty pretty simple stuff. But I thought we'd kind of like kick the tires on it just a bit because Absolutely. what it really does is it kind of goes a little bit further than that in some interesting ways. And um, for anybody following along here, I'm actually like in the docs on their quick start because I th- I think it's interesting and their quick start. Um, I'll say at first for me was slightly confusing just because it actually takes a different starting point, which is you don't even have an open API file yet. Remember how I mentioned that earlier? Right. And 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 you want to get one. And I mentioned, for example, well, you might write YAML by hand or you might uh, use uh, GitHub Copilot to help you write that YAML by hand. Or you might find a GUI tool that lets you build mm-hmm. out the open API spec. Well. This this tool actually offers an another approach that I had not really considered, uh, but I find really neat. And this is this is where their quick start begins. So um, if you go into their uh, using the CLI section, they talk about okay, you're going to run npx at oas tools slash CLI space in it, and you're so you're basically with npx, you don't really download the tool, you you run it yeah. straight from wherever I guess npm. Um, and then what this does is it, it's, it presents like an interactive uh, prompt that you can use to say, how do you want to initialize? And you, you get four different environments. Um, you get server, module, development environment, and uh, open API file. So I'm only going to talk about two of those things, which mm-hmm. is um, either you want to initialize a server or you want to initialize an open API file. Right. So in 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 their quick start, they they actually start by having you initialize an open API file first. So this is like in in my sort of ideal paradigm, this is step zero. You don't have the open API file yet, yet you need one. Right. And in their situation, what they're saying is you can start from what they're calling an entity resource file. Um, I'm not sure if that's like a standard thing or not, but essentially what it is is a, a JSON file. I, I guess you could write it in YAML as well, but. What, what it is, is this entity resource file is, um, if you're in JSON parlance, uh, you would have, the whole file is a JSON array of individual objects that represent the kind of data that your API would be working with. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. So for example, they, they just, I'll, I'll just kind of look at their example here, um, which is they have a, an array of two objects. The first object uh, contains an ID, it contains a name, and it contains an email. Um, and so you can, th- th- the way they have this written, I-, I actually found a little bit confusing in the beginning because name equals user in this case, but that user is an arbitrary name. It could be Carrie. Right. So in other words, it's just saying like, if I were to, if I were to go look for a single user with Carrie's ID on my API, 
it would return an object that contains an ID, carries name, and carries email address. Right. So you're you're having an ex- an example that defines the shape rather than a schema that is defining the shape. Precisely. Yeah. And you kind of have to read between the lines a little bit to realize that's what's going on. So the first time I tried it, I was like, well, whatever, I'll just give it a shot (laughs) again. Like I was just trying to be thorough with the tools I was trying. And I was like, this. if you were trying to start from a place where I already have this API spec, what is this entity resource thing? It could be confusing for you uh, if you can't suspend disbelief long enough. Uh, Fortunately, in my case, I did and then realized this is actually really, really cool. (laughs) Very (laughs) So anyways, the the, the second, you know, again, still in the enter, entity resource file, they it, it, you've got that array, that JSON array. The first object is a user. Um, and again, it's just an example of a user's object. The second object is, again, it has an ID. It has a property called pet name and it has a type called cat. So the type, again, arbitrary, that could have been dog, Mm -hmm. um, elephant, whatever. And obviously pet name could be any name. But again, we're just saying, um, this is if I were to go query, you know, my API for a given pet with I, this particular ID, this is the object I would expect to get back. That is a really interesting way to to do that. And at least in my opinion, it's like operating from the perspective that you have some data that you want to represent, which I think is really kind of cool because usually you're not, I mean, there are definitely areas where you're defining both the data schema structure and the API stuff that goes along with it at the same time. But quite often, you're also probably going to be in the scenario where I have an existing database, existing schemas, existing structures. And it's an interesting way to help it infer how to create all of these files by real ex- by real examples, which is really fascinating. And I think I can see where maybe some confusion would lie. Like the second one, makes a lot more sense as like, yes, this is clearly an example because pet name is Garfield or what have you versus the first one where like you're inferring that it's a user only because the name field had user in it. But I could actually look at that and say, well, there's all sorts of entity types that could represent. It could be a person. It could be um, some, you know, a a login session or, or various other things that were name and email are generic kind of terms. Um, but that's a really cool way to pr- to approach it. Yeah, and so you're starting out by essentially mocking up, or if you already have this data, then just mm-hmm. you know, pulling pulling the data and getting it into this format. But huh. in, in my situation, it would just been like mocking up this data to say, okay, I'm I'm going to create an API that handles uh, various HTTP HTTP verbs. Uh, you know, say that and, ten times fast. Yeah, geez, I always get it messed up. So. Uh, but handles those with like various, like, you know, create, um, you know, uh, like the various CRUD operations, create, mm-hmm. read, update, delete. And uh, so that's actually what we're going to look at next. So all this is, um, if you were to just follow the quick start and um, kind of use what they're providing you, this is dummy data to say dummy data that would say, okay, this is the kind of stuff my API is going to work with. Right. Now we're going to use this to generate an open API spec file. So that's huh. where, when you come to the next step, you run that npx, npx at oas-tools-cli in it, and it's going to give you that interactive prompt. And so you can pick, again, between server, module, developer environment, and open API file. In this case, you want to re- you want to initialize the resource open API file. So you go all the way down to that and hit enter. And then it's going to give you that kind of like NPM in it and style like, 
here's your list of questions. And so it'll say, okay, great. Where is your uh, resource file, that entity resource file that we just previously discussed? And then it'll say, which open API version do you want to use? Um, you know, what's the title description? Um, let's see if there's anything. In okay. And so once you get past that, this is where like you're kind of doing a little bit of the sewing together mm -hmm. because it'll say, okay, um, that first question is provide a name for the resource containing. And then it, it, so it has the property names in that first object that we pass. So if you remember for the user, user has ID, name, and email. So it's saying, okay, I found some uh, an object in the array that is an entity resource. What is this? What is this thing's name? Yeah. And so just, just conceptually right. speaking, that what does it represent? Conceptually mm -hmm. speaking, that object represented a user. So this is the place where you can almost imagine like you you might really want to handle that in the entity resource file. Um, I, I probably would myself, like I'd rather like put the names in there, but either way, like this was another thing that took me a little bit of thinking to kind of get what was going on. But the idea is that your entity resource file does not name the objects themselves. They're it's just, just a, providing the examples, just a, exactly yeah. just an array of examples. And so here is where you say, it'll say, Hey, I found an example. What's the, what's the name of this example? And so you put user. And then it asks you, okay, what's the ID property for user, right? So, um, and of course, um, in this case, the ID property for user is literally ID. So you can select that in the interactive prompt. And then the next part is it'll say which operations will be available for user. And you can select from four um, in the interactive prompt. It would be get, post, put, delete. And these are like literal um they look like radio buttons, but they're actually like multiple select and you can like go into the oh, prompt. Oh, interesting. And, like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so if, if you only wanted to have like getters on user, for example, you didn't want to let somebody update, create or delete users, then you would just select get. Right, right. That makes sense. So for every object in that entity resource file, again, like you're going to be asked those three questions. Mm. What's the name of this entity? Where's the ID property? And then what verbs do you want to support? What operations do you want to support? Mm -hmm. So you can imagine like once you go through that list and, uh, you know, repeat it for re repeat those three steps for pet. And then towards the end, there's a couple of other questions that you got to answer. There's the um, what what's your preferred format for the open API document? Um, I select YAML. You could select JSON. And then um, where do you want to generate uh, that open API spec? And you just tell the location and then and then you're off to the races. So when you are done with this, what you're going to have is a single file that looked at that entity resource file that you created earlier on that represents each one of those types of uh, data objects that your your API is going to work with. Creates an open API spec and, you know, just kind of puts it right there next to, I guess, you know, wherever you want it to, to, to live on your on your disk. That is super cool. That's, I could imagine a world where, uh, and I suppose um, <laughs> this is where having, being very, very intentional about your API surface and, and the stuff that you, you're going to create endpoints for. If I had 15 um, entity resources in my file, that could start to turn into a lot and to keep track of, especially if the shapes were very similar. Um, but this is such a cool, cool way of, I mean, it's, it's, letting you connect the dots of what's what's my like my primary key if I were was thinking about database language since 
in my past, I was a database administrator. And so a lot of these things feel very, uh, like these are questions you would have to ask somewhere, whether it was part of the file or not, or interactive. Um, and interactive for a lot of people is just a lot more approachable, especially if I were in JSON. Like if you're doing lots of things in YAML to get away from the the the, the funkiness of, of JSON, like adding in all of those, well, here's the schema name and here's what the, the primary key is and here's the verbs in that file. Now you're kind of obviating the entire point of the exercise. Um, and so this is this is really an interesting way to approach that. Yeah, it's it, and so if you recall back to what my initial goals were, this really wasn't it, right? right. So <laughs> you, you might be wondering at the stage, like, wait, why are we even? Because this this is like, okay, how, my goal was not how do I get to an open API spec. It was how do I take an open API spec and stub out a server automatically with that. Mm -hmm. But but I will say that like I found this to be a really intriguing sort of like step back. What was almost like a, to a step zero and, and right. something I want to play around with a little bit more. Well, and I think it's interesting is like, um, yes, you could start from your, 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 your API spec right off the bat, but the way it's ordered maybe makes you ask the question is like, oh, well, do I need to rethink my API service? Just because I have a file doesn't mean me mean that it's ideal. Um, and maybe it makes you take that moment to reconsider is like, is my API file in the right form or what I want it to be? Or is it worth just going through this exercise and seeing what comes out? Yeah, and and the to further on that, one, one thing that I realized kind of thinking through kind of when I was going through these steps is that when you when you write an open API spec, you are inherently going to need to write a schema for returned objects or accepted paid loads of some mm -hmm. kind, whether you realize that's what you're doing or not. You're, you're saying, this is the type of body I, I will accept. This is the type of um, bo uh, response body that the, the developer on the other end should expect. Mm -hmm. And, you know, writing all of that out in long form in YAML as part of an open API spec, um, you know, may not be ideal actually. So like kind of having that brief moment at the beginning to think through like, okay, what kind of data are we even working with in the first place could, right. could really inform a lot of your API design. Cause you know, the, the API design, I want to do API design first, but of course there's that, you know, the data is kind of <laughs> where everything comes back to data yes. at some point. And that's kind of the point. I mean, like the developers building an integration with an API in order to manipulate data on behalf of the user or on behalf of the application in some way. Um, and so like having that moment in time to just sit back and think about like that sort of core, um, those data structures, the, the, the schemas of, you know, what, what are we actually working with here could really help save some time in terms mm -hmm. of like having to go back and do surgery on a manually created open API oh. file. Ouch. <laughs> Especially if it were a large complex file that, 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 that sounds a little painful. Yeah, I yeah, and they they, I, <laughs> they get big fast. I'll say that it doesn't take much to get into you know thousands of lines Ouch. pretty easily, and there are ways to break out the, uh, you know your your specs, which is probably a, a topic for another time. Mm -hmm. You can definitely kind of go modular, uh, but either way, it's it's a uh, it's kind of nice to take that step zero, if you will. Yeah. But moving into kind of like the next step, which is really kind of step one of what I was hoping to accomplish with all of this is uh, kind of halfway down in, in OAS tools uh, quick start, which is 
starting from the OpenAPI document. So at this point, regardless of whether you started with an entity resource file or you showed up with your own OpenAPI uh, open document, mm-hmm. um, this is the place where you would want to start if you're saying, okay, I have the spec, I'm ready to generate a server. So again, you go into npx, run the command, npx at oas-tools slash CLI init. Again, you get the interactive prompt. You get the four options, server, module, developer environment, open API file. Last time we used open API file. This time we're going with server, step one, right? It's right there at the right. front. That's what I wanted anyways. So I'm going to hit enter on that. And then it's going to give me again, that sort of style of the, if you do NPM in it, like you get the whole list of questions. And also when we um, uh, initialize the open API file just a few moments ago, same thing, you get a list of questions. This time you're going to get a, a shorter list of questions and I'll just kind of run through them real quick, but it'll say, okay, where do you want to generate your server files? What port do you want to listen on? Where do you want to store your open, uh, sorry, uh, no, this is where is your open mm-hmm. API document? So the one that you want to generate from. And then uh, there's a couple of questions that have felt a little opaque to me um, at the beginning. One of them still does, but I'll, I'll go through them anyways. <laughs> the first one is choose the preferred format for the open API document. So what actually ends up happening here is that when you generate your server, it's going to copy your your open API document, whether or not you just bootstrapped it with this tool or not. And it's going to copy it into the generated server. Oh. So I think what it's I think what this one's asking is like, do you want it to be JSON or YAML when when it when it puts it into the project that you're generating? Regardless of the original format. Yeah, I'm, I, that... I believe that's the, the question. I have not found for sure anything in the documentation related to this. Hmm. Um, but either way, like those are always for me the same answer there. It's like I'll have YAML and the, YAML. The, yeah, YAML and YAML. The next question, I, I've yet to figure out what that is, I think, and it's not in the docs as far as I can tell. So at some point I'll have to go into the source code. Um, their default is no. Oh, but <laughs> to save the suspense, the, the question is <laughs> dereference open API document question mark. I don't know what that means. So I, I haven't quite figured that out yet. Like, uh, I, but their default is no. So I've just gone with no. I mean, I dereference. Huh. I, I mean, I, yeah, I'm sure that's something worth knowing about, but we need to go in and find out what that is. I mean, the like the 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 the, the Pascal developer or C developer in me immediately latches on to dereference and goes, oh, I know what that means. And then the rest of the following two words go like, no, clearly do not do not know at all what this is actually talking about, because like I'm thinking in terms of pointers and things like that, and maybe somehow like that's that's what they're using the reference to, you know, point to the, the document. But yeah, that one is that one has question marks all over it in my brain. <laughs> mm-hmm. So my my best guess, and I haven't gone through to actually look at this yet, but if I had to guess it, I might assume that the remember we said that you're going to get a copy of the open API document mm-hmm. in the generated server. It could be that there's attribution in there to the original open API document. And that could they work. mean reference more as sort of like academically, right. <laughs> but I don't, not uh, in terms of memory. So I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that's what that means. Interesting. But clearly the uh, default uh, worked for you. So it's it seems to be okay to leave it as at no. Yep. 
And uh, so final couple few questions there. Uh, the next one is choose the preferred uh, JavaScript convention for your server. And this is how do you require in um, mm. dependencies? And you can choose uh, ECMAScript modules or uh, what's the other one? CommonJS? CommonJS. Yeah. So I, I choose ESM um, just because I think that's where the wind is blowing. Um, and I'm getting more and more comfortable working in that way. Uh, but if you choose CommonJS, then that CommonJS is, of course, going to be the one where when you require in a dependency, then you do like, I don't know, const fs equals require open parentheses, and then you put in the module name mm -hmm. or path, uh, whereas ESM is more like import statements. Right, right. Uh, and then the last couple are like, uh, will the server run inside a container? And you can have it sort of dock be dockerized. Um, Docker fight from the uh, so like one the two choices that you get here in the interactive prompt are um, Docker or run normally. I, I love the I don't think this is meant to be sort of like throwing like <laughs> shade or anything, but at least for me, like run normally is like don't run the weird way. Anyways, uh, yeah, uh, Docker is great, uh, right. but at the same time, like probably for a local development project I'm I'm messing around on, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna involve Docker, so I don't um, in this case, and I just usually go with run normally. Uh, and then there's one other question, uh, compress files in zip and delete. Again, I Interesting. do not know what that is. I've always just hit no, um, because it just doesn't feel like a going concern for me, uh, whether or not things are zipped up or not. Um, I'm not sure if that's well. Oh, maybe it's like automatically bundling what it's, what it's generating the folder that it's putting everything into and says, Oh, I'll put that straight into a zip file for you delete the original source because now you've got duplicated content. That's how I would read that. Oh, yep. That's that makes a lot of sense. So, you know, there's there's some questions to be answered in this <laughs> for sure. Uh, but else <laughs> it raises an interesting question, like how like you don't want your questions to be super like you don't want each question to be a novel, right? I mean, this is getting into like developer tool UX. You also need it to be succinct enough that that it explains what it's actively doing. And like this, is, it's one of those weird cases as you're building out a developer tool is like, yep, you know, all of the cases. Does someone else who's reading that very same, those very same words come to the same conclusion? And that's, it's, it's always fascinating to me the wh where that disconnect can kind of surface in unexpected places. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, you know, I think that in this situation, yeah, I want to think about that for a second. So like there there are probably things that one could do inside of just the prompt. And when you're looking at the quick start, this looks like, okay, this is just a list of questions and you need to mm -hmm. write a string in manually. But that's actually not what's happening here. So um, in the UI, if you will, like in the in the prompt, when you're working through these, for example, uh, let's go with, well, let's go with choose a preferred format for your API document. Mm -hmm. Like that question would have two potential answers. Those two potential answers will be listed for you under that question. And you're picking one. It's either JSON or YAML. So it's not like you're literally writing in Y-A-M-L. Uh, and so- This is just documenting the response that the example developer has picked, I see. Precisely. And so what I, I think in some of these cases, what you what you might consider doing is, um, okay, let's say for dereference open API document, well, that's a yes or no question. So there's only going to be two answers to it. Mm -hmm. And you, you could have both of those options listed there with parentheses or something behind them that kind of explain, explains, you know, what it is. And, you know, you don't, since this is a program, you don't have to be literal about 
the answer the user chose. If they select no, don't dereference my, you know, no, I would like to keep a reference to my original API document or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. You could have that entire string as the ant is the answer the user selects, but then in the background, of course, translate that into no um, right, once they hit right. enter. Well, and that 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 ties nicely into, I mean, like just UX in general, right? Where I I don't know how many dialogues you've seen in the past of of some some error message pops up or some dialogue pops up and the and the answers that you can give are yes no cancel or what have you and it's like well what is yes actually going to do what is no actually going to do what are what are these very various things going to do and so it's an interesting um like in that particular opportunity like you have to be succinct because there's limited visual real estate in, in that button so coming up with the right cta is like is is a um is a really important skill. Whereas here you're in a text-based environment. You could have the yes, no with a nice, reasonably uh, description after it that clarifies what you're talking about. You have a little bit more leeway to be, be very clear there. Um, but it's still super important. Like, especially when I see like in, in that other question, compress files and zip and delete, I'm inferring what delete is actually referring to, but like delete, like sends all sorts of red flags up in my brain. It's like, what are, okay, what are you going to be deleting? My answer probably will always be no, just because that's mm. in there, unless it was very clear what it was going to be deleting. Oh, it's such a good point. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, uh, if I don't know for <laughs> sure what you're going to do, I'm going to go ahead and say no to that. Uh, yes. It's kind of <laughs> similar to like when things are requesting access to system resources right? in my OSs these days. And I'm like, well, if I, I, if no. I don't know what you're going to do, the answer is no. Yes, the answer is exactly. No. Yes. Why would you need access to X, Y, and Z? No, 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 no. This is This is not happening. Yeah, and actually, this is uh, this just popped up, so I'll say it and put this in the show notes. I uh, I listened to this um, podcast on it's called the Change Log, and mm-hmm. they were interviewing um, someone who works, uh, sorry, who builds this thing. It's uh, it's called Textual textualize i think um so i i, I wasn't pre- going to mention this i wasn't thinking about it so i'm i'm looking it up in overcast as i speak but it's an entire like whatever textual is i haven't looked into it yet but having listened to the podcast the whole idea is like you're building full user interfaces in the terminal um using python mm, and mm-hmm. it sounds really interesting um but i think they talk a lot so much about what they they refer to as tuis I've never heard it referred to that way before, but maybe it's just me, but like, you know, text, you, I guess, text, text user, user interface. Inter- yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Anyways, I thought that there was just like a lot of really good um, uh, discussion in the, in that episode. So I'll, I'll link to that just because I think it's worth a, a listen. And at some point worth it, I feel like it's a tool that would be worth us trying out. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, okay, so we we took the entity resource, uh, kind of coming back to OAS tools here, we took an entity resource from that, uh, answered a few questions, and OAS tools then generated an open API file. So that's our, our, do- our open API document, or spec, as it's also referred to. And then we went back into OAS tools, and uh, this time said we want to initialize a server, answered a handful of questions about that, and then um, it worked its magic. And on the other side of that, now you have a Node and Express server um, that's been built for you. And um, so I think, you know, if you go into, for example, like the the entry point, you know, for the, the generated Node and Express server, 
basically we'll have some import statements or requires depending mm -hmm. on what kind of um, setup you selected in the bootstrapping process. But they're gonna they're gonna import HTTP and Express and then uh, OAS tools core, um, and then the rest of it's like you know your index.js where the initial setup is done is is pretty, um, let's say simple. It's you know just the core is like less than I want to say it's probably about twenty five or thirty lines of code. Nice. Um, and then from there, what ends up happening is that the in the backgrounds or how do I say this? Like you're basically running all calls into this initialize um, method from uh, OAS tools core. And I don't totally know how that part of the magic's working, but at some point, once it's run kind of been routed through the tool, then it's going to hit um, the, the controllers that the, the CLI creates for you. So let's say, for example, um, like you just wanted to have an endpoint that was get all users. Mm -hmm. So it's going to take all of the, um, let's see here. It's like, it'll create a, do, do, do. Ah, no. So we're going to do find user by ID. Sorry about that. So um, let's just say, for example, we wanted to get like that one user carry that we mentioned right. earlier. So what it will have done is create a, um, you know, once it's generated your server, OAS tools has created a, a, a directory full of controllers and they'll be named by convention based on however you named them in the open API spec. Mm -hmm. So in my case, it's uh, like the name of the controller for uh, anything to do with um actions on specific users, like a single user, uh, anything that involves like working with an ID. Um, so you can imagine like it's going to basically take the name of the path. So in that case, like all all ID, um, sorry, uh, like paths that involve a user that require an ID, like um, find a user by ID mm -hmm. or update a single user by ID or delete a user by ID. Right. All of those are going to be because they're all in the open API spec under the same path, they're going to go, they're going to be generated. Those controllers are generated in the same file. So oh, and gotcha. the naming that convention just takes the path and smashes it down. So it's API v1 users ID controllers or controller. And inside of that, it creates uh, human readable names. So you get like the find user by ID, update user and delete user. Mm -hmm. And those are controllers. So they're, they're it's a really short file. It's like 13 lines of code. And each one of those controller passes passes the call um, onto a service. So in that, let's say, for example, again, we wanted to do the find user ID by ID. So mm -hmm. you know, carries ID one, then we're gonna do we're gonna do a get on um, the endpoint slash API slash v1 slash users and pass as a as a parameter. Uh, carries ID, which in this case might be one. Uh, so cool. It goes into the controller. It finds that find user ID by ID method. And again, OAS tools is the one that's mapping all of this in the background. So that's a little bit of a black box that I, I want to learn more about. Yeah. But it finds its way there via the proper method. And then uh, you it, it passes on the request and response objects in Express to a service called find user by ID. So if you click over into, and I mean, like if you had this bootstrapped, you were to click over to the corresponding service, this is where you would write essentially the business logic, right? So at right. this point, like if it's, I, I've gotten that request, it's gonna have that parameter of the ID. 
there's a find user by ID method inside. Mm -hmm. And so at that point, you can imagine, well, I'm going to do the database lookup by and passing that ID in. I'm going to get the user object back and do whatever else I need to potentially on that and then uh, pass it in a res.send call, mm -hmm. which is how um, Express ends that call with a response and sends it back over. So I know that was kind of a lot to follow, but essentially you're getting a bootstrap server with an index.js super lightweight entry point. Mm -hmm. And then you get a bunch of controllers and services that map exactly to like the naming conventions in your open API spec. So it's scaffolded out um, all of the, I guess, in a way, all of the internal routing or the internal mapping of this particular call maps to this particular bit of business logic. It stubbed all that out. And now you're free to concentrate on the implementation of those particular methods without having to worry about all of the boilerplate that goes around making that work. Is that a fair the statement? That is exactly it. And that, that's what I was hoping to get to, you know, because I think a lot of that stuff that when you're writing an expressor from scratch, there's there's plenty of things that are just kind of boiler, boiler, fairly boilerplate level. Code. Right. And if all you're doing is like a CRUD REST API, um, there, there's no value add in just trying to remember to <laughs> to get all of that on the page when a tool could just as easily do that for you. And then, yeah, you get to focus on the business logic instead. So it's like, you know, I'm going to reach out to my database or, you know, do some sort of, I don't know some kind of data massaging or whatever it is, and then send mm -hmm. a response back. Interesting. Now, does it do the, the, the very next question and, and apologies if, if, if this is jumping the gun or, or not something that that one has thought about yet, but I'm curious, like if the, if part of the business logic is okay, send this object back because we had that entity resource file, is it doing anything in terms of reformatting or or checking that, that that object structure is correct? Or is it just being very lightweight in that regard and saying, whatever you return, you better have gotten it in the right shape. Um, I'm not going to double check you. Is that oh. kind of what it's going for? I love the question because the answer is absolutely yes. And I was kind of, I was wondering that as I started working on it. Mm -hmm. And so as a matter of fact, like the, so the answer is yes. And the reason why it's yes is that you use the entity resource file to generate the open API spec. Well, even if you didn't use the entity resource file and you just wrote your open API spec, remember how I mentioned like at some point you still have to say what it is you accept and what you will respond with in the body. Mm -hmm. So you're still effectively writing a schema or in, in some fashion. And right. so in, in the open API spec, so you're going to have that. And the OAS tools will enforce that by default. And so interestingly enough, and nice. I think maybe this is an, uh, so a next step probably for, for the tool package, uh, OAS tools, is, well, when they generate those uh, controllers in the, in the corresponding services, the services right now always respond with the res.send that is an object with the property of message that in a string that says, this is the mockup controller for find user by ID. Now, I, and again, like I always assume for something like this, uh, I, you know, I want to start by assuming that there's a reason why, and it, you know, may, maybe it's just, they haven't had time to go a step further here, or there could be other reasons why it's like, well, well, we want to start you out by having invalid responses so that you actually know to go in and like 
do something there. You know? Right. That could be the reason why, and that would be valid as far as I'm concerned. But yeah, if you think about it, it's like, well, look, um, you've done all the bootstrapping for my, you know, you've generated my server anyways, and you got it all the way down to the service based on the the HTTP operation that I wanted, a get, put, post, delete. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, there's no reason why it couldn't just look at the schema in the open API spec and then put in a dummy object in that res.send. Like that that's definitely a doable thing. So I think in my mind, either they considered it and thought there's a probably a good reason why not to do this, or they just haven't gotten around to it yet. Yeah, because I mean it'd be really cool to be able to have that and like maybe it's a a, a a flag or something like that that you could add and say like the end result is actually a yes, it's using mock data, but it's a fully functional server. You could start hitting it and getting the right stuff back and and actually start playing together multiple requests to that endpoint to make sure that my entire journey is possible or what have you. And so I could see value in that. On the flip side, I could also see just knowing my own brain and my own tendencies is, oh, great it's written all this code for me and it returns actual results and then forgetting in one module to actually fill it out. Like, because it will work, it will just return incorrect data. It'll return mock data. And so I could easily understand a reason as to like, in some ways that could be easily um, uh, get, get wrong code out there versus like, there's always that fine line of, having something that's functional and working, even if it's working on mock data versus you don't want to ship that to production. You want all your own custom business logic in there. Yeah. And I I think that, you know, there is that convention out there of using, for example, like the to do in Mm -hmm. comments. And I don't know if that's the right answer or not, but there, there is something to be said for maybe go ahead and mock it up as close to high fidelity as possible while also giving me an indication of like, where are the blanks that I need to fill in as a developer? And again, I I don't know how it's not necessarily super widely spread that people use that like to do in a comment as a tool. Like, have you ever seen those like VS code Mm -hmm. plugins, for example, that'll kind of turn? Yeah, they highlight and make a list out of all of these and say, here's all your to do lists. Yeah. Do you use those? I'm curious. Um, <laughs> that doesn't sound like a yes. <laughs> oddly enough, um, no. What? So I'm thinking back to like it. It depends upon one the project that you're working on. So I have definitely seen seen teams use it, and I've seen code using it. Um, on the flip side, um, what I found just happened naturally was in when I was working on my own projects, is I literally just had a to do dot text file in the root of the project. And that's where are they, everything went. Um, I think partly because like, I may not always be in an, in that same environment with those same plugins running. And so having that separate file just took away, didn't, didn't mean that I had to have that a, another set of plugins in another environment that may be completely different trying to do the same things. Um, but there's a part of me that sees like there's, there's value there if you're always sitting in the same environment or you're working across a team that uses the same set of plugins um, and the same conventions, 
that could be interesting. Um, but yeah, occasionally you'll see my code will have a like uh, slash slash at to do or whatever, but it's rare. It's usually sitting in a to do.txt file. Mm. Yeah, I think that uh, <laughs> handling to do's while hacking on projects is one of those things that I would probably be like worth its own conversation at, yes. at some point. Because <laughs> I, you know, there's definitely that sort of let's use the plugin kind of approach and you handle it all in comments. But I would agree with you. Like, that's exactly why I tend not to use them is I can't always assume that I'm going to be in that same environment with the same setup. Mm -hmm. uh, and frequently I'm not these days because, uh, you know, I think, you know, using GitHub code spaces on an iPad, for example, I've noticed some things don't carry over uh, and uh, I, I need to get to the bottom of that anyways. Interesting. Yeah. But, yeah. I think like as well, like some of my other approaches over time have been, just <laughs> brain dump everything as it occurs to you into a GitHub issue. And, uh, you know, I've mentioned to you that I've seen a few of yes. my, my ancient issues closed on some Adobe projects uh, pretty recently <laughs> uh, that were just basically <laughs> like a, a note to self. And, and then I'm, I'm hearing from new contributors who are like, this doesn't make any sense. And I'm like, you're right, it doesn't. This is something I was telling myself. It makes sense then, but no longer. <laughs> I was telling myself in 2018 something. And, um, Sometimes I've also done that in the README as well. Mm -hmm. um, and I think there, uh, you know, that can be like a useful tool if uh, you're just trying to give potential contributors to your little project like ideas. I yeah. think if, it, if you're running a project of any size at all, that wouldn't scale um, even for a minute. But uh, a lot of times, like, it's just helpful to, in my mind, uh, anyways, to throw it into the README as a checklist and give people an indication of where something's going. But also if they wanted to work on something like those, those might be good areas to explore. Yeah. Yeah. Some of mine have started there. And then um, as the list grows, it's like, oh, that looks ugly. So that's when it turns into, oh, it's going to be its own separate file. And in the readme is like, go view this file. Because <laughs> otherwise, a checklist, especially when you have lots of ideas and no time to actually implement them, um, the list gets really long in a hurry. <laughs> and checking them off the list is um, occurs with less frequency. <laughs> mm hmm. Absolutely. So uh, you you mentioned as a next step here, then like, you know, whether or not it, it validates the um, requests and response, mm -hmm. uh, it being o the OAS tools tool. Yeah. Uh, and the, the answer is yes, uh, which was a surprise and delight thing for me. I, I certainly like had a smile on my face when I saw that was what was happening. Um, I'll say so one thing that, you know, I'd mentioned uh, at the outset was, okay, so APIs don't sort of like you don't design them once and then they, right. they kind of <laughs> last forever. <laughs> like it's la almost laughable. Like you can't finish saying that without laughing a little. <laughs> They're going to change. And and so what if you have a tool that's entirely focused on helping you bootstrap something that's great in certain contexts. But I think in this world where like, um, you know, the whole like I want the source of truth if it's API design first approach, mm -hmm. source of truth ultimately needs to be in that open API document. So right. if the open API, API document changes, can this tool continue to be a partner with you mm. along the way? And let me, <laughs> I'll uh, not keep you in I suspense. I have some suspense. <laughs> yeah, the answer is no. <laughs> but, but I actually, this was the one where I reached out on a GitHub discussion thing. Uh, I'm not totally used to GitHub discussions yet, but the, what I've used so far feels pretty nice. Mm -hmm. And I jumped in to, on this one about a week ago. And that's basically my question, which is like, okay, I don't always, if you recall when, when you use the interactive prompt, mm -hmm. 
Yep. You get four options and one of them was server and uh, module and uh, developer environment and open API spec. We only talked about two of those today. Right. Um, but I, I almost want to see a third one, which is just like um, ge- uh, controller and service generation for new paths. I mean, and I haven't thought right. through exactly like what would the design of this feature would look like, but l- let's just say, for example, like the, the easiest possible scenario here, and there's probably a lot that we could talk about, but like the simplest possible example is that you add a new path. Mm-hmm. And so if you added a new path, then your server in into your open API document, your server is like already out of contract with that document by default right. because you, 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 your, your <laughs> spec says one thing, but your server doesn't do it. So you don't need to bootstrap an entire server again. As a matter of fact, you wouldn't want to because you've right, already you've already got work in there. Exactly. And so there's one would think, OK, yes, there's got to be a way for, you know, to, to have a tool that can look at, okay, here's the current state of the spec. Here's what the server is doing. And here's what seems to be missing and generate that new controller and service on the fly. Right. I mean, certainly not a small feature request. <laughs> no, because I can imagine, like, I mean... <laughs> You you could you could you could parse the JavaScript. You could parse the file structure, and assuming everything was picture perfect in in the exact format that you expected to be, maybe you could infer you know I need to create a new file. But then you've got these methods inside the JavaScript file. They could be in any order. You could you could do all sorts of stuff in all of these files. It's not necessarily trivial to understand what I would need to fill in. And what what is mapping the map without, I would think, adding in a lot of comments and metadata, uh, you know, that have like a comment that says this maps to this and it's in a format that it could understand. That feels like that could be an option. But just like parsing out a project of arbitrary JavaScript on its own, you wouldn't probably be able to get there easily anyway. And from the maintainer um, on as an answer to my inquiry in the GitHub discussion, they they came back and said, uh, I'm not sure if the CLI tool generates missing files. I, I'm, I'll say that I'm pretty sure it does not, but I, I don't know for a fact. So mm-hmm. I guess I should go in and try it. I feel like I did and it didn't, but it's been a, it's been a week. Um, but the to continue from the maintainer, it says, but it could be interesting if the CLI did that, uh, since you could set the start script in package.json to generate the missing files through the CLI before actually starting the server. Um, there are ways to implement this, so I'll take a look. I think it's an interesting feature for future versions. So I think it's a pretty cool idea. Interesting. Um, yeah, and I think it's interesting that, um, yeah, they were uh, super open to just like entertaining this yeah. kind of like random thought for me. <laughs> but it's true, right? I mean, I it, it's always that question of, the stuff that I mean, I don't know about you, but at least the the designs and the code that I write very even as I'm going through version one, let, let alone even thinking about version two is it's it's a very iterative process. And it's like, oh, shoot, I will have forgotten this this particular thing or, oh, maybe I need to go back to user and we add in a new field to uh, to that shape. And you don't want to lose all the hard work you've done in the current server. you 
it'd be really, really ideal if I could just have it somehow generate the diff and say, here's the missing bits. Here's the, here's where they need to go. Apply those to the, to the code and, and kind of like a code mod solution of like upgrading from one version of react or whatever. Um, but then you start getting into is like, well, how would you answer those particular questions again? How would like you need to you'd have to start maintaining some state somewhere. But it'd be really, really cool if you could say, OK, yep, I've created it the first time now as part of the CLI or maybe for those people who don't need it. It's an it's a companion tool, OAS tools slash update or something like that that says, OK, now I will go through and, and apply changes after the fact. Because, yeah, as, as you've said in the past, is like these things will always be changing over time. It's not like you've arrived at the perfect answer in, in the first version of, of these things. Yeah. And I would like to call out the when. So kind of thinking through when I reached out to talk about this potential feature request for the tool, I, I I'm now remembering like. What I noticed was if you add a, a new path, for example, like a new endpoint, that OAS tools, if if you're if you literally put it into your open API spec mm -hmm. that's the active spec in the project, OAS tools is always looking at that. And so if I were to start up my server, I'm gonna get error messages like on mm -hmm. start that tell me if I'm missing a particular controller mm. or a service or a service method. So I think like that's where I kind of got to thinking like these error messages are actually very helpful because it I mean it pointed me yeah. exactly to like what I needed to do. It just felt like now it, that it has done so, it's like <laughs> it could go do it, right? Yeah, it's like if you know what I need to do, like couldn't can you, can you just do it? And and again, like <laughs> as, as as we covered, not easier said than done. But it just feels like there's like that's like a a nice like little meaty edge to kind of push a little. Yes. Bit. Well, and it would be, it, it would enhance the the value and being able to continue to come back and reuse it, not just to create new servers, but to update my existing ones. Um, and then I guess there's the always the ultimate question is how far do you go? Because at some point, do you end up in the territory of like JavaScript's automatic, sem automatic semicolon insertion where like, yes, semicolons are part of the language, but you don't actually have to do it because it magically knows where, to, where everything puts. But I will say back in the old days when I was, writing C in Pascal, nothing frustrated me more than expected semicolon here. It's like, well, you know, there's a semicolon there. Just go put it there. <laughs> <laughs> Let, fix up my code for me, please. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I'm interested to see like where hmm. this tool goes, but yeah. at, this, at the same time, like it's, um, it's already super useful for, at least for what I wanted, which was, I want something that'll generate a server that's pretty light, that tries to keep things as simple as possible, not interject injecting too many sort of decisions or opinions, uh, even though that's inevitable when you use Node yeah. and Express because none of that stuff is like decided from on high. So you have to decide how you're going to do some things. I'd say that one area that, and I, I referred to this earlier, that I find just a little too much of a black box is uh, that when when you're using oes tools again like this isn't just a cli that generates things it is a dependency in your app 
Right. And it's it's running thing. So it's doing things to every request and response. And and there you can learn about some of like their their path of middleware in the documentation. But one thing that I'm 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 not quite used to in terms of how the generated server is structured is we, we talked about controllers and uh, services. So again, if we were to go back and just like t- do method names, it's like, you know, you're in a API v1 users controller JavaScript, and it has like a, a find by ID method that then passes to a service that's also called find by ID. And that's where your business logic would happen. But uh, hmm, sorry, now that I'm thinking about this, I think, okay, this is what I was going to say. So the operation or the method that you're supporting in in those methods so you find by id that's a get request mm-hmm. update user that's a put request mm-hmm. delete users obviously a delete request however that's all those are all function names by convention they are not leveraging on the developer side in this generated server they do not leverage express routers where each one of those HTTP methods are explicitly like a, an object in the code that you're using. So let's say, for example, like if you hmm. if you build an express server by hand, at some point you're going to use express router or may, maybe right. you won't, but you might do like a, an app.get or an mm-hmm. app.put or an app.post or, or whatever the equivalent is. And, and so like, each one of those calls is part of the code and the, the name of those methods, get, put, post, delete, right. or whatever, are, are meaningful. They're not just convention. They're part of the library. Whereas in this case, what we're saying is OAS tools generates controllers and services that by convention have names that imply the method or the operation that you're supporting. But it's not just like explicitly using properties and functions in the library itself. Do you, do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. It's I mean, it's 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 obscuring the magic a little bit and like say it's still giving still giving you the clue that hey, what I generated for you is use, using this, but you the developer are not explicitly m- doing that mapping. It's all happening a little bit more behind the scenes from the sounds of it. And I guess that the in there would be some of the challenge of um I, or I guess not challenge, but a question of how comfortable are you when you're starting a new project or a a, a new uh, server or what, what have you from a CLI that is bootstrapping your stuff? How comfortable are you having that bootstrap also be a dependency? Or or are there and I'm and I'm sure there are arguments to be had both ways. Is like totally fine with that as long as you know i can debug it and understand it and and when i go off the beaten path i can still figure out my way around it versus being totally purist and saying no i want you to generate all the code and not have any dependency at all because then it's totally under my control um and i'm sure there's somewhere in the middle is is probably where i would land um because it's it's not always like when you do create racked app create react app if i can talk straight <laughs> you 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 expect react to be a dependency here but um if i were doing some other scaffolding of of particular projects i might not expect the scaffolder to be part of the output code so i think that is an interesting thought to be to to pursue 
Yeah, and I guess in React Land you have the React eject, which eventually exactly, has it yes. write all the code down explicitly and puts yes. it into files, and it's not a runtime sort of like yeah. library that I, you know. I'm I'm not that familiar with that piece of it, but my understanding is basically like that's a un, not. It is an unundoable function. Like once you've done it, once you've done it, you're done. You're, you're ejected, and I guess yeah, you could hope for that here. And honestly, like the more as we talked this out in OAS tools, like just not explicitly being able to see under the hood. The more I, we've chatted about this, I think for now, anyways, I, I'm I'm comfortable with that. Mm-hmm. I, I think there was a moment in time where I'm like, where's the magic under the hood? I want to see it. Um, and of course, I could. I could go look in the library. It is a dependency, and it's right. It's, in my node modules folder. Um, but I think, yeah, sometimes it's just when you see things happening by convention, at least for me, it makes me feel a little less comfortable than if the library um, that are, or the frameworks that are being used are explicitly enforcing something. Yeah. Well, it, there's always that concern of um, knowing what the magic is accomplishing. And I'm, I, like I think magic is cool in so many ways until you inevitably run into that issue an issue with the with the mm-hmm. magic and then it's like oh how do I debug this thing because it's in somebody else's code on the flip side is like there are some things like building out these servers where I'm using this intentionally to avoid all of the boilerplate because I'm going to miss something when I write that boilerplate so if I can you know have good confidence in the tool that they have addressed these things in terms of how how all of this works. Like there's a, there's a level of magic that I'm comfortable with and okay with accepting that I can kind of still grok in my head versus um, some of the magic that can be out there is, is almost too clever by half is like, it's doing all of these really cool inferences and like you're almost turning like say JavaScript or, or web tags or whatever into its own like special language or like um, some of the other things I've seen is like, you know, fun, fun things done with uh, C++ uh, templates and, and pre and post processing, all of this stuff. Like you can do some really clever things that are really magic, uh, full of magic. And yet when things go wrong and they will, it's impossible to understand how that magic is working. Looking at the code on GitHub here is like, it all seems fairly reasonable and it's not so clever that you don't actually know what's going on under the hood. You could figure you you have a lot of good inferences already to get you down the right path. Well, for folks that want to uh, come in and, and use OAS tools, I, I would, I'd recommend it as something to try out and I'm, I'm certainly having a lot of fun with it. Um, yeah. One thing I'll call out is if if you bootstrap a server with uh, OpenAPI 3.1 uh, as opposed to OpenAPI version 3.0.x, um, one limitation on 3.1 right now with OES tools is you won't get the Swagger style documentation mm. that you might expect. Uh, the, I think that's a feature they're currently working on implementing, um, but that's a known limitation. So um, for for my purposes, I, I don't think there's really an issue. I'm, I'm sticking with 3.0.x for the time being because I like having this Swagger style docs to be able to go in and play around with um, while I'm working. Yes. Um, and so anyways, just worth keeping in mind because I, I definitely uh, did not 
I thought it was me for a while. <laughs> Let's put it that way. <laughs> when I first bootstrapped the server on 3.1 and then I, I like, kind of clicking around, I'm like, why am, how am I doing this wrong? Is this pretty turnkey? And it turns out that's actually a, a limitation. So uh, just worth keeping in mind. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, it's an, it's a, a interesting limitation there. I wonder is, is, is it just because OAS tools hasn't implemented that or is it something more with the 3.1 spec that like swagger isn't fully supporting? Yeah, I, I, I've got to say I'm not entirely certain. I seem to recall it being called out somewhere as being a, a not yet kind of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, but I don't remember if what where I saw that. At. Oh, actually, yeah. So in their docs here, they have a compatibility guide. Um, which oh, there. Yeah. We'll not will not answer this question. So because <laughs> if you go, it's it's pretty helpful actually. They go through like all the Node.js versions they support, Open API versions, and JavaScript syntaxes. It's so funny. I, as I look at a grid like this, I'm like, I seem to remember making something like this for uh, ExtendScript and oh yes, Photoshop <laughs> at some point. Um, and because there were so many version numbers to juggle <laughs> with that, with uh, not just ExtendScript, but what were they called? Uh, CEP extensions. They're, they're, yeah. Yep. That yeah. table still exists. <laughs> yep. So uh, fun times for all uh, when you have to have all these different versions um, of dependencies to think about. But anyways, uh, for OES tools, core version three uh, currently does not support open API version 3.1. Um, that's the only X on the line besides, you know, you'd have to have a node version um, uh, 14 or greater. I suspect most of us would at this stage anyways, but yeah, just One keep hopes. that in mind. Uh, I found that everything else seemed to have worked fine. I, I didn't push too hard on the 3.1 side of things because, mm -hmm. uh, but I think the servers seem to have worked fine, but not the swagger docs themselves. So I, I don't know, but worth, worth keeping in mind, stick to 3.0 for now. Um, and yeah. maybe that's a feature they're working on. Well, it sounds, I mean, I, I, it sounds like a really cool tool. It sounds like it would make it so much faster to get started, avoid having to write a lot of boilerplate that frankly, none of us ever probably want to have to write ever again. Um, and um, it also looks like it has a lot of thought put behind it. And even just browsing the code while we were talking um, a little bit, like the code structure looks really nice. It looks like it really good JavaScript, easy to understand. Um, like this, this feels like one of those tools that um, it that that should be charging <laughs> for its existence. It's like it feels really polished and really well put together. Yeah, who knows? Maybe there will be an enterprise version at some point. <laughs> but for now, I just want to say I'm super thankful to the maintainers on this. And they've been like, I mean, what little interaction I had, I'll, I'll link to the discussion I submitted in the in the show notes as well. But like, they were super friendly there, too. And um, yeah, so it just feels like there's it's a project with a lot of great energy that happens yeah. to align with exactly what I happen to have been <laughs> looking for last month. So um, I'll, I'll say, Carrie, uh, I never thought in a million years that when we started talking about this, that we'd have an hour's worth of things to say about it. So um, anyways, thanks it's for your patience. how that works. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Um, but yeah, it's certainly something I've spent a lot of time heads down in uh, uh, just kind of fun kind of after work time 
um, before bedtime recently, just messing around. So, uh, I would encourage people to give it a try. Yes. Uh, but yeah, thanks for, uh, thanks for w- being willing to go, go down this rabbit hole on OAS tools today. <laughs> well, it's been my pleasure. I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed it because this is not necessarily an area that I get to dig into a whole lot these days. Um, and it's like, it's, it's always fascinated me and it's always been, um, really interesting. My day job is mostly all about in-app stuff, but the, the, the server, the, the cloud, the web side of the house, like this, this is really cool. So I'm, I'm always happy to, uh, come along for the ride. Well, awesome. Well, I suppose until next time, Carrie, I'd rather be scripting. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to this episode of I'd Rather Be Scripting. If you love scripting, terminals, Z-shell, JavaScript development, and other random technology tangents as much as we do, we'd love to hear from you. You can always leave a review on your preferred podcasting platform, or you can reach out to us via the social links on our website, idratherbescripting.com. Until next time, I'd rather be scripting.